Chapter Four of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter Four: The Luck of Pitsy Hall. As the days and weeks went on, Madame Colucci became more than ever the talk of London. The medical world agitated itself about her to an extraordinary degree. It was useless to gainsay the fact that she performed marvellous cures. Under her influence and treatment, weak people became strong again. Those who stood at the door of the shadow of death returned to their intercourse with the busy world. Beneath her spell, pain vanished. What she did and how she did it remained more than ever a secret. She dispensed her own prescriptions, but although some of her medicines were analyzed by experts, nothing in the least extraordinary could be discovered in their composition. The cure did not therefore lie in drugs. In what did it consist? Doctors asked this question one of another, and could find no satisfactory answer. The rage to consult Madame became stronger and stronger. Her patients adored her. The magnetic influence which she exercised was felt by each person with whom she came in contact. Meanwhile, Dufrayer and I watched and waited. The detective officers in Scotland Yard knew of some of our views with regard to this woman. Led by Dufrayer, they were ceaselessly on the alert, but try as the most able of their staff did, they could learn nothing of Madame Colucci which was not to her credit. She was spoken of as a universal benefactress, taking, it is true, large fees from those who could afford to pay, but, on the other hand, giving her services freely to the people to whom money was scarce. This woman could scarcely walk down the street without heads being turned to look after her, and this was not only on account of her remarkable beauty, but still more because of her genius and goodness. As she passed by, blessings were showered upon her, and if the person who called down these benedictions was rewarded by even one glance from those lovely and brilliant eyes, he counted himself happy. About the middle of January the attention of London was diverted from Madame Colucci to a murder of a particularly mysterious character. A member of the cabinet of the name of Delacour was found dead in St. James Park. His body was discovered in the early morning, in the neighborhood of Marlborough House, with a wound straight through the heart. Death must have been instantaneous. He was stabbed from behind, which showed the cowardly nature of the attack. I knew Delacour, and for many reasons was appalled when the tidings reached me. As far as anyone could tell, he had no enemies. He was a man in the prime of life, of singular power of mind and strength of character, and the only possible motive for the murder seemed to be to wrest some important state secrets from his possession. He had been attending a cabinet meeting in Downing Street, and was on his way home when the dastardly deed was committed. Certain memoranda respecting a loan to a foreign government were abstracted from his person, but his watch, a valuable ring, and some money were left intact. The police immediately put measures in active train to secure the murderer, but no clue could be obtained. Delacour's wife and only daughter were broken-hearted. His position as a cabinet minister was so well known that not only his family, but the whole country rang with horror at the dastardly crime, and it was fervently hoped that before long the murderer would be arrested and receive the punishment which he so justly merited. On a certain evening, about a fortnight after this event, as I was walking slowly down Welbeck Street, and was just about to pass the door of Madame Colucci's splendid mansion, I saw a young girl come down the steps. She was dressed in deep mourning, and glanced around from right to left, evidently searching for a passing hansom. Her face arrested me, her eyes met mine, and with a slight cry she took a step forward. "'You are Mr. Head?' she exclaimed. 
"'And you are Vivian Delacour,' I replied. "'I am glad to meet you again. Don't you remember the Hotel Bellevue at Brussels?' When I spoke her name, she colored perceptively and began to tremble. Suddenly, putting out one of her hands, she laid it on my arm. "'I am glad to see you again,' she said in a whisper. "'You know of our—our our most terrible tragedy?' "'I do,' I replied. "'Mother is completely prostrated from the shock. The murder was so sudden and mysterious. If it were not for Madame—' "'Madame Colucci?' I queried. "'Yes, Mr. Head, Madame Colucci, the best and dearest friend we have in the world. She was attending Mother professionally at the time of the murder, and since then has been with her daily. On that first terrible day she scarcely left us. I don't know what we should have done were it not for her great tact and kindness. She is full of suggestions, too, for the capture of the wretch who took my dear father's life. "'You look shaken yourself,' I said. "'Ought you to be out alone at this hour?' "'I have just seen Madame with a message from Mother, and am waiting here for a hansom. If you would be so kind as to call one, I should be much indebted to you.' "'Can I do anything to help you, Vivian?' I said. "'You know you only have to command me.' A hansom drew up at the pavement as I spoke. Vivian's sad grey eyes were fixed on my face. "'Find the man who killed my father,' she said. "'We shall never rest until we know who took his life.' "'May I call at your house to-morrow morning?' I asked suddenly. "'If you will be satisfied with seeing me, Mother will admit no one to her presence but Madame Colucci. I will come to see you then. Expect me at eleven. I helped Miss Delacour into her hansom, gave directions to the driver, and she was quickly bowled out of sight. On my way home many thoughts coursed through my brain. A year ago the Delacours, a family of the name of Pitsy, and I, made friends while travelling through Belgium. The Pitsies, of old Italian origin, owned a magnificent place not far from Tunbridge Wells. The Pitsies and the Delacours were distant cousins. Vivian at that time was only sixteen, and she and I became special chums. She used to tell me all about her ambitions and hopes, and in particular descanted on the museum of rare curios which her cousins, the Pitsies, possessed at their splendid place, Pitsy Hall. I had a standing invitation to visit the hall at any time, when I happened to have leisure, but up to the present had not availed myself of it. Memories of that gay time thronged upon me as I hurried to my own house, but mixed with the old reminiscences was an inconceivable sensation of horror. Why was Madame Colucci a friend of the Delacours? My mind had got into such a disordered state that I, more or less, associated her with any crime which was committed. Hating myself for what I considered pure morbidness, I arrived at my own house. There I was told that Dufrayer was waiting to see me. I hurried into my study to greet him. He came eagerly forward. "'Have you any news?' I cried. "'If you allude to Delacour's murder, I have,' he answered. "'Then, pray, speak quickly,' I said. "'Well,' he continued, "'a curious development, and one which may have the most profoundly important bearing on the murder, has just taken place. It is in connection with it that I have come to see you.' Dufrayer stood up as he spoke. He never liked to be interrupted and I listened attentively without uttering a syllable. "'Yesterday,' he continued, "'a man was arrested on suspicion. He was examined this morning before the magistrate at Dow Street. His name is Walter Hunt. He is the keeper of a small marine store at Houndsditch. For several nights he has been found hovering, in a suspicious manner, round the Delacour's house. On being questioned, he could give no straightforward account of himself, and the police thought it best to arrest him. On his person was discovered an envelope— addressed to himself, bearing the city postmark, and the date of the day the murder was committed. Inside the envelope was an absolutely blank sheet of paper. 
Thinking this might be a communication of importance, it was submitted to George Lambert, the government expert at Scotland Yard, for examination. He subjected it to every known test in order to see if it contained any writing on sympathetic ink or some other secret cipher principles. The result is absolutely negative, and Lambert firmly declares that it is a blank sheet of paper and of no value. I heard all these particulars from Ford, the superintendent in charge of the case, and knowing of your knowledge of chemistry and the quantity of odds and ends of curious information you possess on these matters, I obtained leave that you should come with me to Scotland Yard and submit the paper to any further tests you know of. I felt sure you would be willing to do this. Certainly, I replied. Shall I come with you now? I wish you would. If the paper contains any hidden cipher, the sooner it is known, the better. One moment first, I said. I have just met Vivian Delacour. She was coming out of Madame Colucci's house. It is strange how that woman gets to know all one's friends and acquaintances. I forgot that you knew the Delacours, said Defrayer. A year ago, I replied, I seemed to know them well. When we were in Brussels, we were great friends. Vivian looked ill and in great trouble. I would give the world to help her, but I earnestly wished she did not know Madame. It may be morbidness on my part, but lately I never hear of any crime being committed in London without instantly associating Madame Colucci with it. She has got that girl more or less under her spell, and Vivian herself informed me that she visits her mother daily. Be assured of this, Dufrayer, the woman is after no good. As I spoke, I saw the lawyer's face darken, and the cold, hard expression I knew so well came into it, but he did not speak a word. I am at your service now, I said. Just let me go to my laboratory first. I have some valuable notes on these ciphers, which I will take with me. A moment later, Dufrayer and I found ourselves in a hansom on our way to Scotland Yard. There we were met by Superintendent Ford, and also by George Lambert, a particularly intelligent-looking man who favored me with a keen glance from under shaggy brows. I have heard of you, Mr. Head, he said courteously, and shall be only too pleased if you can discover what I have failed to do. The sheet of paper in question is the sort on which ciphers are often written, but all my reagents have failed to produce the slightest effect. My fear is that they may possibly have destroyed the cipher, should such a thing exist. That is certainly possible, I said, but if you will take me to your laboratory, I will submit the paper to some rather delicate tests of my own. The expert at once led the way, and Defrayer, Superintendent Ford, and I followed him. When we reached the laboratory, Lambert put all possible tests at my disposal. A glance at the stain on the paper before me showed that cobalt, copper, etc., had been already applied. These tests had, in all probability, nullified any further chemical tests I might try, and had destroyed the result, even if there were some secret writing on the paper. I spent some time trying the more delicate and less known tests, with no success. Presently I rose to my feet. "'It is useless,' I said. "'I can do nothing with this paper.' It is rather a presumption on my part to attempt it after you, Mr. Lambert, have given your ultimatum. I am inclined to agree with you that the paper is valueless. Lambert bowed, and a look of satisfaction crept over his face. Dufrayer and I soon afterwards took our leave. As we did so, I heard my friend utter a quick sigh. We are only beating the air as yet, he said. We must trust that justice and right will win the day at last. He parted from me at the corner of the street, and I returned to my own house. On the following day, at the appointed hour, I went to see Vivian Delacour. She received me in her mother's boudoir. Here the blinds were partly down, and the whole room had a desolate aspect. The young girl herself looked pale and sad, years older than she had done in the happy days at Brussels. "'Mother was pleased when I told her that I met you yesterday,' she exclaimed. "'Sit down, won't you, Mr. Head? 
You and my father were great friends during that happy time at the Bellevue. Yes, I feel certain of your sympathy. You may be assured of it, I said, and I earnestly wish I could give you more than sympathy. Would it be too painful to give me some particulars in connection with the murder? She shuddered quite perceptibly. You must have read all there is to know in the newspapers, she said. I can tell you nothing more. My father left us on that dreadful day to attend a cabinet meeting at Downing Street. He never returned home. The police look in vain for the murderer. There seems no motive for the horrible crime. Father had no enemies. Here the poor girl sobbed without restraint. I allowed her grief to have its way for a few moments. Then I spoke. "'Listen, Vivian,' I said. "'I promise you that I will not leave a stone unturned to discover the man or woman who killed your father. But you must help me by being calm and self-collected. Grief like this is quite natural, but it does no good to anyone. Try, my dear girl, to compose yourself. You say there was no motive for the crime, but surely some important memoranda were stolen from your father?' His pocket-book in which he often made notes was removed, but nothing more, neither his watch nor his money. Surely no one would murder him for the sake of securing that pocket-book, Mr. Head. It is possible, I answered gloomily. The memoranda contained in the book may have held clues to government secrets, remember. Vivian looked as if she scarcely understood. Once more my thoughts travelled to Madame Colucci. She was a strange woman. She dealt in colossal crimes. Her influence permeated society through and through. With her, a life more or less was not of the slightest consequence. And this terrible woman, whom, up to the present, the laws of England could not touch, was the intimate friend of the young girl by my side. Vivian moved uneasily, and presently rose. "'I am glad you are going to help us,' she said, looking at me earnestly. "'Madam does all she can, but we cannot have too many friends on our side, and we are all aware of your wisdom, Mr. Head. Why do you not consult Madam?' I shook my head. "'But you are friends, are you not? I told her only this morning how I had met you.' "'We are acquaintances, but not friends,' I replied. "'Indeed, you astonish me. You cannot imagine how useful she is, and how many suggestions she throws out. By the way, mother and I leave London to-day.' "'Where are you going?' I asked. "'Away from here. It is quite too painful to remain any longer in this house. The shock has completely shattered mother's nerves, and she is now under Madame Colucci's care.' Madame has just taken a house in the country, called Fram Manor. It is not far from our cousins, the Pitsies. You remember them? You met them in Brussels. I nodded. We are going there to-day, continued Vivian. Of course we shall see no one, but Mother will be under the same roof with Madame, and thus will have the benefit of her treatment day and night. Soon afterwards I took my leave. All was suspicion and uncertainty, and no definite clue had been obtained. About this time I began to be haunted by an air which had sprung like a mushroom into popularity. It was called the Queen Waltz, and it was scarcely possible to pick up a dance program without seeing it. There was something fascinating about its swinging measure, its almost dreamy refrain, and its graceful alternations of harmony and unison. No one knew who had really composed it, and still less did any one for a moment dream that its pleasant chords contained a dark or subtle meaning. As I listened to it on more than one occasion, at more than one concert, for I am a passionate lover of music, and seldom spend an afternoon without listening to it, I little guessed all that the Queen Waltz would bring forth. I was waiting for a clue. How could I tell that all too late, and by such unlikely means, it would be put into my hands? A month and even six weeks went by, and although the police were unceasing in their endeavours to gain a trace of the murderer, they were absolutely unsuccessful. 
Once or twice during this interval I had letters from Vivian Delacour. She wrote with the passion and impetuosity of a very young girl. She was anxious about her mother, who was growing steadily weaker, and was losing her self-restraint more and more as the long weeks glided by. Madame Colucci was anxious about her. Madame's medicines, her treatment, her soothing powers, were on this occasion destitute of results. "'Nothing will rest her,' said Vivian, in conclusion, "'until the murderer is discovered. She dreams of him night and day. During the daytime she is absolutely silent, or she paces the room in violent agitation, crying out to God to help her to discover him. Oh, Mr. Head, what is to be done?' The child's letters appealed to me strongly. I was obliged to answer her with extreme care, as I knew that Madame would see what I wrote, but nonetheless were all my faculties at work on her behalf. From time to time I thought of the mysterious blank sheet of paper. Was it possible that it contained a cipher? Was one of those old, incomparable, magnificent undiscovered ciphers, which belonged to the ancient brotherhood, really concealed beneath its blank surface? That blank sheet of paper mingled with my dreams, and worried me during my wakeful hours. I became nearly as restless as Vivian herself, and when a letter of a more despairing nature than usual arrived on a certain morning towards the end of February, I felt that I could no longer remain inactive. I would answer Vivian's letter in person. To do so, I had but to accept my standing invitation to Pitsey Hall. I wrote, therefore, to my friend, Leonardo Pitsey, suggesting that if it were convenient to him and his wife, I should like to go to Pitsey Hall on the following Saturday. The next afternoon Pitsey himself called to see me. "'I received your letter this morning, and having to come to town today, thought I would look you up,' he cried. "'I have to catch a train at five-thirty, so cannot stay a minute. We shall be delighted to welcome you at the hall. My wife and I have never forgotten you, Head. You will be, I assure you, a most welcome guest. By the way, have you heard of our burglary?' "'No,' I answered. "'You do not read your paper, then. It is an extraordinary affair. Crime seems to be in the air just now. The hall was attacked by burglars last week, a most daring and cunningly planned affair.' Some plate was stolen, but the plate-chest, built on the newest principles, was untampered with. There was a desperate attempt made, however, to get into the large drawing-room, where all our valuable curios are kept. Drugo, the mastiff who is loose about the house at night, was found poisoned outside the drawing-room door. Luckily the butler awoke in time, gave the alarm, and the rascals bolted. The country police have been after them, and in despair I have come up to Scotland Yard and engaged a couple of their best detectives. They come down with me to-night and I trust we shall soon get the necessary clue to the capture of the burglars. My fear is that if they are not arrested they will try again, for, I assure you, the old place is worth robbing. But there, I ought not to worry you about my domestic concerns. We shall have a gay party on Saturday, for my oldest boy, Ottavio, comes of age next week, and the event is to be celebrated by a great ball in his honour. "'How are the Delacours?' I interrupted. "'Vivian keeps fairly well, but her mother is a source of great anxiety.' Madame Colucci and Vivian are constant guests at the hall. The Delacours return to town before the ball, but Madame will attend it. It will be an honour and a great attraction to have such a lioness for the occasion. Do you know her head? She is quite charming. I have met her, I replied. Ah, that is capital. You and she are just the sort to hit it off. It's all right, then, and we shall expect you. A good train leaves Charing Cross at four-thirty. I will send the trap to meet you. Thank you, I answered. I shall be glad to come to Pitsey Hall but I do not know that I can stay as long as the night of the ball. Once we get you in our clutches, Head, we won't let you go. My young people are all anxious to renew their acquaintance with you. Don't you remember little Antonia, my pretty songstress, as I call her? Vivian, too, talks of you as one of her greatest friends. Poor child, I pity her from my heart. 
She is a sweet, gentle girl, but such a shock as she has sustained may leave its mark for life. Poor Delacour, the very best of men. The fact is, I should like to postpone the ball on account of the Delacours, although they are very distant cousins, but Ottavio only comes of age once in his life, and under the circumstances we feel that we must go through with it. Upon my word, Head, when I think of that poor child and her mother, I have little heart for festivities. However, that is neither here nor there. We shall expect you on Saturday. As Pitsy spoke, he took up his hat. I must be off now, he said, for I have to meet the two detectives at Charing Cross by appointment. End of chapter 4, part 1